The wait is over. New episodes of The Walking Dead Season 10 are premiering early February 21st on AMC+. Don't miss the extended 10th season featuring six new episodes, each focused on fan-favorite characters. Prepare for all-new high-stakes showdowns and emotional reckonings by catching up on the latest season before new episodes drop. With season binges, exclusive content, and early access to new episodes, the best Walking Dead experience is only on AMC+. Get lost in the Walking Dead universe today. Available ad-free and on demand. Sign up at amcplus.com. AMC+, only the good stuff. Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? I know, I know it's been a few weeks since we last spoke, but just life gets in the way sometimes. I'm sure you can appreciate that. But what a fantastic episode we left a few weeks ago with Nicole Kidman. Yeah? What a reaction. And how great was she? She was so natural and funny. Um, Because as you know, you never know what to expect. There's no rehearsal for these things. You just dive in. And it was great. I was thrilled and made up she came on. Now... Speaking of being made up, we're back this week with somebody who we've been trying to make dates work for ages and ages, as is the way with these things. It's Mr. Reese Shearsmith, and I'm thrilled. He joined me in the Jury's Inn in Brighton. Well, I mean, I say he joined me. We was over Skype. Obviously, that's how we do things um, these days, which, I'll be honest, it's not the same. But look... I'm very, very hopeful that in the coming weeks, I think we're going to be able to do our first person-to-person, socially distanced episode, which I'm very much looking forward to. Let's see, cross fingers, eh? Um, so yeah, we're back. We are back recording. We're gonna. It's gonna be. It is gonna be more regular in the coming weeks, but still, bear with us. Um, hopefully, we'll get one for next week. Um, but we are planning on recording a bumper crop of new episodes to take you through Christmas and into January. So we shall be back up and running with your regular Two Shot podcast Thursday mornings or whenever you listen to it. I know some people keep it for the weekend. Well, let's get down to it, shall we? This is episode 137 of the Two Shot podcast with Reese Shearsmith. Enjoy. And I shall see you at the end. It's a sorry state of affairs at the seaside town, but I did manage to get out for a ride on the bike today. Oh, good. Um, which blew a bit of the cobwebs away. Yeah. Um, have you been doing all right? Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, obviously strange for everybody, but we um, work-wise, it's been sort of all right because we were... We started. We were filming in March. We got three days into the new uh, series six of Number Nine, mm. and then it got stopped. And so we were, that was fucked. And then we took the time in lockdown to write series seven because we knew we had it. They commissioned six and seven together, but we hadn't written seven. We just thought well, that would be that would be the next thing after filming six. So then we 
did it. I mean, it was really weird to do that. That was a whole experience in itself because it was remote. We never done that before. I write with Steve in a room, you know. Well, I was going to say that, you know, with that partnership, is it that you'll take some or Steve will yeah. take some, then you'll come together and join the dots. But, you know, you're usually together in the, in the room. Yeah, our writing process generally has always been that we we sort of don't go separate ways. We sit and everything is talked through and we are in the room all the time creating it. And so what's weird is, and we just had another, we did a read-through now and it was on Zoom and it was terrible because it was all, <laughs> creates a little island of everyone. There's no timing and it's just remote and dead, completely dead. It makes it, you doubt it completely. So it was like, that sounded terrible. But they all seemed to be happy with it. But yeah, so the writing was odd because it was, we had the screen and we had final draft page each mm. and we were able to just talk through new ideas and, and slowly chip away at these stories but what it exposes is how much of it is your your playfulness and your invention and your creativity is in the down is in the off beats and this is like right we're doing it now and so that <laughs> that having to turn it on in that in that time is exhausting because it's like there's no sort of oh should we just forget it and just go for a coffee and, and you know you just can you have that thing where you're ebbing and flowing and this is like no you've got to do it now Mm. And it's interesting because I always remember a, there's an interview with um, Cleese, John Cleese, about the room to play and the creativity is in that space where you sort of, you've got the ability to sort of almost feel like you're not doing it and you can riff, suddenly riff on a little bit and you can improvise a little bit and then write a bit down and there's talk. And, and that's really hard when it comes down to, we're going to do it and then we're going to stop at four o'clock and it's like a job job. Yeah. And I, well, we sort of have made it into that because we've got an office and we go to it and we sit in a little room in Muswell Hill and we, we, we do like nine to five hours. But nevertheless, there is obviously still something in that feeling of you're not always on. And this is just being on the screen with the other person and going, right, we're doing the writing bit now is really, it was sort of intense and, and exhausting in a way that I don't, I, we couldn't have kept it up in the, we did less hours. We got, we did it, but it was it was much more grueling for the time we were doing the writing, which was interesting to me because I thought that is really that's exposed sort of one of the those bits where you stop and you just have a laugh and, you, and you're not doing it, but you're still sort of thinking about it and ruminating on it. And also, the human contact is there, of course, in yeah. the room next to you, and now it's almost clinical, absolutely, yeah, in a way. And there is no human. There's no experience yeah you're not sort of having anything happen else than being in the house and so that you know there's no sort of rubbing off of ideas and just seeing something in the street that might spark spark a new thought you know of the people with masks on because of having to adapt to that Reese, did it was the writing process i mean you said it was slightly more grueling but it, did it take longer no uh, it didn't really we were able what we've done is, I mean, we have, we've done it. We've written, mm. we had a couple of goes where we've written, um, two, there was about two scripts that we wrote that we thought were really good. And they've been sort of shoved back across the table um, with them saying it's too expensive. It's like you've written the movie. And so we were like, oh, great. <laughs> and that seems to have happened about four times that we've thought we've, right, that's the last one, that's series seven, done. And then it's like, no, we can't do that one. It's like, oh, fuck, why not? And it's so, and we are really good at knowing the, the budgetary things, you know. Yeah. We know, oh, we better not have a drive. We can't drive along in a car. Let's be parked and do the talking so we haven't got a low loader and all the things, you know, let's make it in the daytime so it's not a night shoot. 
even about things like putting curtains up to make it look day for night, we have an awareness of that, <laughs> which is really not the way it should be where you're really hampering your own... Yeah. At, the, at the point of writing it and thinking you can flourish and be creative, you've, you've, you've got sort of constrictions anyway in your mind. And so we thought we were doing all those things of levelling off budgetary worries, and it's just got tighter and tighter. I mean, it's another, that's another story, our the budget of number nine, but it's gone, it seemingly has gone down and down the more series we've done. Yeah. It's not gone up at all. I think that's, I'm sure you know that, it's just that weird thing where you think things that are a success and are being recommissioned, they'll be throwing money at it, or at least having a bit, you mm. get a bit more, and it's like, oh, we'll do the same again for less. Yeah, well, that's it. Oh, well, what you did there, that was fantastic. So you did six episodes for X amount. Now, series two, I want you to do eight, but I'm taking more money away from you. And yes, it's always, exactly. it, it seems to have been like that for years, and it's yeah, not stopping, is it? It's not, no. It's, it's, I mean, everyone's got their version of it, haven't they? But, yeah, obviously we're not unique in that respect at all. It's just odd, isn't it, that you... Is there a place where that's not the case, and it... They're giving more and more money every, you know. The Mar- do the Marvel films get more and more every time? <laughs> probably. HBO, yeah, probably. I'd say. Yes, exactly. It's yeah. interesting. I was thinking about um, Number Nine specifically a while ago, uh, and I've always talked to people about, you know, c- having creative control. And it's interesting that you say now that, that there's, there's restrictions that, you know, as the success goes up and up through series to series. Yeah. Because it seems to me, from the outset, it always seemed to me that that you and Steve had such a clear vision of what you want that nobody else could could hamper with that or sort of look at it and say, mm, I'm not sure this works. Well, you don't actually know because this is art. It's so specific. It's so specifically your world. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I mean, and, and especially with the scripting, we are left to our own devices. I mean, mm. it's extraordinary, really. And I, I absolutely cherish the luxury of it because I know it's not the case for a lot of people that we write them in a room over there and they're sort of made. Mm. And they don't... And, and they're, 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 they are... They question some things and, and sometimes it's, it's budgetary. But as far as the plot, we've got it written so... It's so pinned down by the time it arrives because they're not like early drafts with sort of vague ideas. They've pretty much written and they can't really unpick it. They can't mm. say, well, can the twist be that she doesn't die or whatever it is? It's like, <laughs> no, of course not. No, it's not that. So they can't really get the claws in and, and unpick it in that way, which is good, I think. But, I mean, yeah. we are open. We, I don't think we're so megalomaniacal that I think we are the arbiter of absolute... We always love... Um, collaborating with everyone and hope that everyone will make it better you know we've got a version of it we think is really good and then all you want isn't it is everyone that's better than you in their expert fields can make it better and better and better and that's yeah absolutely. we won't be i know people that are like they come running in and it's like no you said if then and it's what if and it's like, oh, fuck. really you think that now because I'm, I'm the absolute opposite i if i'm working with actors i and they've got our scripts i'll always say these are the words, but and don't completely paraphrase it, but if there's something that's niggling you in, in, in a way that you're finding it odd to say or it's always tripping you up, because you get that sometimes with mm. sentences that you was an actor, you think that's just not sitting right in my mouth. I'll always be happy to change it, but I know some people and writers that are very prescriptive about every dot and T and I, and it's like... Yeah, he's called Martin McDonough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that's right, yeah. But, but we both had experience know, with. But, you know, with... With you know great writers like that, I suppose you ha- you know you do have to respect the work, and if that's what they want, that's what they want, and it they've written it that way f- 
for a very specific reason. So you have yeah. to follow that path. But then again, it's right. There are also other writers who will say, I've had it said to me, you know, right. It, this is your, this is not mine now. This is yours. So obviously, yeah. yeah don't just sort of go completely off road. But if there's something that doesn't feel natural coming out of your mouth, yeah, yeah, then take that apostrophe away, or you know, say you've instead of you. you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. It is funny, isn't it? Because you do think, well, sometimes we are very specific about something. We just think that's not now as funny as it's written because they're not saying it right. Uh, the you know the the rhythm is like, mm. off, and we you know we have thought a long time about. It the way something might land. So that matters. But other times I just think, yeah, that that, that really doesn't matter. But um, I suppose it's just um, what it's serving, isn't it, in the end? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, I, 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 you know, with these podcasts, I tend not to talk about work that much. Yeah, good. Because, but, but because, I, I mean, I, I want to kind of dip into a little bit with yeah. you because of, because of the journey of, of where you've come from and starting where you did and where yeah. we are now. And I think it'd be really interesting. And also there's one thing that I, that a lot of younger, when I've got actors on, a lot of younger actors always like send me emails and go, oh, well, I, I want to, you know, get off my arse and create my own stuff. Yeah. And you are, and, you know, you and Steve and Mark and Jeremy, it's like you are a blueprint of actually getting off your arse and, and really creating your own work. Yeah, and... You know, we. I'm sure none of us would be. It's anywhere without the the work that we created that then preceded us and had people think, "Oh, he was from that thing." You know, mm. we, we never had any success until we'd done our own thing. Really, not as individual actors. It was it was hard. You know, we're doing TIE and a lot of the stuff that ended up in League of Gentlemen was our experiences of doing all that stuff. And me, me being on the dole, my restart officer was was Pauline Campbell right. Jones and you know, yeah. just wrote it, used to come home and write it down. And then it was, what was weird was about that was when I was finally off the dole and doing the League of Gentlemen, doing, sat back in a pretend restart room with Steve playing Pauline. It was actually like quite weirdly miserable again. It was like, <laughs> I'm now not doing it, but I am doing it again, <laughs> experiencing it all over again. But yes, it was, it was um, a strange journey because I never, the big thing about the whole league and the trajectory and sort of that the, the 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 blueprint now, like you say, of of how we did it and how we just you know it was Edinburgh Festival that did it really. We, yeah, we did sketches at, at Maida Vale above a pub in at the um, Bridge Canal Cafe, mm. and we just did lots and lots of different sketches and we honed it and honed it. Basically, only our friends coming back and back, and never really a new audience. But it was always a bit different because we knew they were coming back, so we thought we'd move the stories on. So that was where a narrative of the characters sort of began to emerge and then we did like a best of for edinburgh and we never but i remember distinctly not thinking it was a plan to become famous for it it was just it was weirdly like we just couldn't not do it we yeah. hit upon doing it we're all on the dole and it was just it was an outlet for something that we just all had to do and it, i just felt like it was we loved doing it and it was there was obviously there was some drive in us all to do to keep doing it, mm. and I, but I, I, I distinctly remember thinking, it, what you do is you go to Edinburgh and then you get seen by the BBC and the Industry Week, and then you do this, and then you, that was never. I never even thought about it in those terms. I genuinely didn't think of it. I mean, maybe that was why there was an innocence to that. I don't know, but it was. I think Mark was more canny and was think and, and had connections, and he was the person that knew the person that ran the Pleasants, and so that's why we got a good spot. 
which is one of the better venues in Edinburgh yeah. rather than venue 92, the toilet, <laughs> whatever it might be. Ten miles outside the city centre. Exactly, yeah. So that was, that was a great... Um, in fact, Edinburgh probably, Edinburgh 96, was when we did it to not our friends and to audiences that were just coming on the recommendation of the Scotsman and getting a five-star review. Mm. That was the best time ever, despite all the BAFTAs since and all the success we've had, all the, of the many other things. Because that was like, oh, my God, this is not just... It is funny to people that are not just being polite about it. But our friends just yeah. obviously coming along and going, oh, it's great, it's really good. I think, of course, you're going to say that. But I never really... I, don't, I, didn't, I, don't, I thought it was good, but I, that was suddenly, like, vindication. It was... A really, a real eye opener to think. Wow, people are actually—they don't have to laugh. These people—they don't know it. They don't don't know us personally. Yeah, they could sit in silence. So it was a genuine thrill to think we're doing it. It's actually—it actually works with people we don't know, and people uh, discovering it for the first time. Who, as you said, you know, weren't an invited audience, or there was no connection yeah, to either of you. Just come. They had many other things, to, any choices to make in that, that courtyard. All the other things they could go and see. And then we got this five-star review, the fabled thing that you need, and then it was sold out. It was only at 80 seats. That's why it was sold out. It's so tiny venue. But nevertheless, it was like the best time because it was suddenly like we were suddenly like a hit, a tiny little hit in the corner. And it was – and I also, I don't think it was that – it wasn't rocket science what we were doing either. It was just really well rehearsed. We really rehearsed the sketches and it was slick where I think a lot of sketch shows at the time were, A, not even popular, because it was really out of favour. It was Stand-up was the thing then. So it's yeah. quite old-fashioned to be doing sketches with a fourth wall and just doing our these little conceits. But it was high drama as well. We acted them to the hilt, and you were suddenly, from sitting down in your chair, you were wrapped in this little mini-drama that took you on a journey and then was horribly dark and then broke it with a laugh and we really absolutely sort of went for it as far as the stakes and of the characters and, and that little mini um play that happens before your eyes that they we loved doing that and i i genuinely think probably the league was never better than when it was live because i think that was when you had the frisson of feeling awful in the audience and then having that relief when it's we let you off the hook with a laugh and i think that was what we were doing there it was sort of mm. It was Grand Grillion. It was properly um, using the the danger in the room, you know. Was there any connection that you had when you, you know, when you brought it back? Was it Drury, was it Drury Lane all those we years did, later? We did what, Drury there, Lane, yeah. There, and recently we a, did it. Uh, two, we did it at the O2. Wasn't it at the O2? Yeah, did two oh nights my. at the O2. Well, totally I mean, ridiculous. Jesus, what a journey from going to the canal. What's the canal cafe like? Hardly anything. It's like 30 people, yeah. Jesus Christ. I mean, we're on the O2 stage. We we did mark it. We thought we were fully aware of, like, look at the journey we've come on. Mm. From above a pub to, to <laughs> this. Like, doing it to a city. I mean, it was weirdly sort of not the not the best show, really, because it was it's too big. You can't play it and feel a laugh no. roll back. It's just you do it, and you do it by muscle memory. You just sort of go, I think I'll do it now. And then there's little pockets... About 40 minutes later, they, at the back, get it. Unless some people here have already got it and they sort of never get it. So it was a bit weird to do it there, but it was an experience and it was, you know, a real eye-opener to think 20 years later we came back with that live show 
And who were these people that came out to see it? I was absolutely... I thought we'd get a couple of nights in maybe, like, Corn, Corn, Royal Corn Exchange in Cambridge or so, some yeah. little theatre. And we did all only arenas. It was amazing. We just did arenas. I, I was genuinely thrilled and surprised and moved that these people had sort of cherished it and loved it for all this time. It's like it had never gone away for them. They were so yeah. pleased to see these monsters come back on stage again. Do you think it, it started to build, uh, you know, that cult following from radio? Or, or was it only when it uh, progressed onto the small screen? I think that there are people that have followed it right from the radio, yeah, right from Edinburgh. Right. People saw us in that above that pub and, and, and saw the gestation of those characters and then followed the journey as that we've had right through every incarnation. But And some people have arrived at different points along the way. You know, some mm. people have only ever seen us live, maybe, and some people just only saw it second series of League and then they went back. Some people didn't never knew it and knew Mark from as Mycroft Holmes and have gone, what's he done in the past? And, and then gone back, back and se- and then gone back and seen him dressed as a woman and it's like, what's this? <laughs> with all these monstrous characters, this erudite Mark Gates that created Sherlock with yeah. Moffat. So it that's an interesting thing because that's had we've got so old now that people now are, are arriving young people that never knew it at the time of looking back at your catalogue and going, what What else did they do? And that's very strange. But going back, talking about going right back, what, for you personally, uh, what came first for you? Was it horror or comedy? Because, you know, just looking at your work, you're never really a stone's throw from, from either, really. Yeah, I know. So just thinking I mean, about growing up. I was always a, I was a very, I mean, I still am really very shy and uh, I'm, Loathe often to be um, myself in things. You know, I'm often asked to do uh, quizzes and things. I'll never want to do anything like that. I, I always think it's not what a real actor does. I always think, would you would see Laurence Olivier on Have I Got News For You? Or, <laughs> or maybe you would now, actually. He'd host it, wouldn't he? <laughs> they probably would. It's interesting <laughs> you said that because I was going to come on to that. I was thinking... You know, you see those people who are, they're doing the rounds, they're always on the countdowns, they're always on the yeah. one I like to. And, you, <laughs> you know, you, you never pop up on those. No, I've done a, I've done a few. I think I did, um, I did uh, Would I Lie To? Because I thought there's a thing you've got to do. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm afraid of um, revealing my batting average. And I know it, that you can be edited to look shit and quiet. And I just thought, I don't want to have, give anyone the opportunity of fucking me over with some bad edit. Yeah. And you just reveal your, you know, I think I am quite shy. I'm, I'm not, I don't try and be pushy in the way that I think you've got to be a little bit to shine in those sort of environments. So I was always quite a shy uh, young person, and but I did like horror. I was obsessed with horror and, and Edgar Allan Poe. And I was the classic little sort of Tim Burton morbid little child that loved Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and would sit and watch the Hammer Horrors and probably far too young see all these grisly films and yet also loved comedy as well yeah and i've managed somehow to do a career where i'm always flitting between the dark and the, and the light and and that weird delicious place in between where you're not quite sure what to, to make of it you know and that that's i've always loved that because i mean you know now also increasingly in i'm always thinking about um 
the categorization of things and what what something is meant to be and how we have to have a pigeonhole for stuff but and our stuff always slips through the cracks i think because it's it's all of these things it's there is great drama in it and then there's very silly comedy and then there's psychological trauma and then there's a completely pure out horror and that sometimes doesn't sit well with well what how do we market this you know what is this anyway and yeah i think life is that isn't it you know you can have all those things happening and so we're just trying to do cherry pick all these great moments to make something that makes you sit up and watch it too much telly just goes passes you by <laughs> but also heartbreaking moments as well yes I mean, surprisingly um, moving, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that has always surprised people that we've done that. that, I mean, I'm always surprised that people are so touched by some of it. But I think they don't expect that of us, which is why it's even more sort of... You smuggle it in in a comedy programme and it hits all the harder, doesn't it? Because you're not geared up for it. Exactly. But I think, you know, a lot of comedy does come from quite a heartbreaking and sometimes dark place. That's That's the type of comedy that always gets me. Because yeah. it's, it always comes from a from uh, you know however odd and extreme the very root of it is 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 heartfelt it's heartfelt and it comes Absolutely, from a place it comes yeah. from a place of truth so that yeah. way then you can speak to me and we can connect to it Absolutely yeah yeah and it's it is it's all the more heartbreaking because you've the buffoon that you've been laughing at suddenly reveals that they're a human mm. and you go oh my god and it's pulls the rug from, takes the wind out of yourselves, doesn't it? Because mm. you go, I've been laughing at them for the last 20 minutes and now <laughs> they've revealed that they're a real person. That didn't occur to me. And then when you show people that, yeah, it's sort of all the, the journey is, is that moment of suddenly caring hits all the harder, doesn't it? People like Ronnie Barker used to do it. And, oh, well, he, was, he was an absolute master at doing it. Yeah, brilliant, yeah, and... That I guess is what is a, one of the other things I loved growing up was the character actors that were great at comedy as well. They were brilliant actors, but they were doing a lot of comedy, like Sellers and Led Roster and Barker and those people. I thought that's what are they doing? That's so brilliant. They're different in everything, but and they're truthful, but they've got brilliant comic bones, you know, funny bones. But they were complete and, masters of their craft. And yeah. that way, I, I always thought, even when I was growing up and I was looking at, you know, people like you say, like Ronnie Barker, who I was amazed by because he was so skilled at the comedy, but obviously then could break heart. And I, th- I thought, well, if he could do that, he can quite clearly do drama. He could do, er- he could do anything. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. I, I mean, what a brilliant... You look at him and you think, you can't believe that Fletch is that same man with a, a lime yellow, <laughs> a yellow jacket on doing two Ronnies. Yeah. It's amazing. It's completely different transformation. Transformation. Brilliant actor. Yeah. So that 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 was another sort of inspiration as well. And Alan Bennett as well. The voice of Alan Bennett and the, those plays that he wrote that used to be on Play for Today and mm. some of Victoria Woods' early TV plays as well. That that voice of the North stuck with me as well. And that turn of phrase and those sort of ladies that Alan Bennett used to write. I loved that that he, he that that chimed with me because I could hear it. That was my life in Hull. I used to hear the women in the corner shop talking like that, and that was like this is this this is properly speaking to me because I I know it. And people love it when you do something that it resonates with them, doesn't it? Whether or not they've actually not had the actual experience, but it's something that they can 
sort of relate to. That's why, weirdly, the local shop is a very... It's a very classic sketch in a way because people know that thing of going into a shop and feeling like they're they're instantly being that the owner is suspicious of them immediately and you, yeah. you're affronted that you're thinking what I'm not, you're thinking am I going to steal something and I'm not and that was where that came from a little bit and I think people it chimed with people it's this sort of everyone sort of had that experience in a weird way. Well, even with you know characters, you know quote unquote who were grotesque, yeah, massive. to an extent you'd go. Well, I know that person, or yeah. I, I know that group coming round my school trying to <laughs> teach me just say no, you know, legs akimbo <laughs> in a certain way, because I've been there. I know that type of person underneath. I've met them, or they've been my dinner lady. Yeah. Or, as you say, you hear those people in the corner shop. You just do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Was Were you always quite a shy child at school, Reese? Oh, yeah. Um, off, um Quite bullied, um, and uh, Be- because got, of shi- because of shyness, I think just out of yeah, out of not really joining in. I was quite, I was asthmatic. I didn't mm. do PE. I was like the weakling. I weirdly was really good at um, high jump and hundred meter running. Weirdly, I could do those sort of short distance sprinty things, and that stood me in some stead. But uh, generally, quite. Uh, fearful of of the the bull of the big the big kids you know and the the girls on the top of the bus and that sort of thing i'd be quite terrified of having experiences where i would have to possibly raise my head over the parapet you know Mm. i'd rather be quiet in the background and those that did know me i was being funny and i was doing impressions of the teachers and and i was sort of quietly respected by a a, a little group of other nerdy people yeah generally i think we would have been looked at as like the weird Weird ones that were pale faced and didn't go outside in when it was sunny. So you wouldn't use humour as any sort of defence. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, and I was sort of funny by doing impressions of the teachers and stuff. Yeah, get me. It's a classic thing, but I did used to do it. Yeah, but um, and and impressions of other kids until they would find out. Oh, and I used to draw as well. I'm quite good at art, and I used to draw caricatures of people. Right. So that would always be going on secretly, and there'd be just little slips of paper with people's faces cruelly caricatured <laughs> <laughs> and was school quite fulfilling academically or was that not something that was on your radar yeah i did all right i was good at english and art mm. terrible at all the sciences and maths couldn't understand it complete block and i found it terrifying cold sweat i think i get cold sweat now thinking of it and i just couldn't do it but um the other le- other subjects, English and history and um, and art, as I say, was I, I was good at and I, I could do it. And I think um, I pursued art right up until the point of the crossroads of leaving school and then thinking it was a last minute decision. I thought I won't. I feel like I want to somehow try and do acting. I don't know what that means. I didn't even really think about a na- drama school, so I sort of hedged my bets because my art teacher told me to try Bretton Hall, which was this. It was sort of like a, it was a degree course at, at affiliated to Leeds University that was in mm. near Wakefield. And that was where yeah. Mark and Steve were. And it was sort of drama college until suddenly the last year where it is a degree and you've got to do a lot of essays. And that was suddenly pulled everyone up short because it was like, we haven't done this for three, for two years. We've just been acting. <laughs> so that was quite terrifying. But um, it was good, Breton, for, for leaving you to your own devices because it, 
I don't think it was very good when we were there, but what it was good for was that we just did put on our own little plays and we started writing stuff. And I didn't know Mark and Steve there, but I did my, I was doing my own stuff in, I was in the year below them both. Right, okay. And they were doing stuff already together at the National Student Drama Festival and they went to Edinburgh and stuff. So they were like fable as these two that do their own stuff and they're really funny. And uh, I would go and see them in the student bar and they'd be doing stand-up and doing sketches and stuff and they were really good and very sort of I aspired to like be part of their gang. But it wasn't really until we'd all left Breton and it was a couple of years after that we all got back together to do some sketches for a friend of ours, Gordon Anderson, who now directs TV, who knew Jeremy Dyson and he mm. sort of pulled us all together to write some sketches that became the seed of the league. And that was like just out of an a-, a happy accident because he'd been directing a play on the fringe and then there was some sort of... Um, it was like a... a a celebration of all the best bits of the fringe that year. And he had a gap of an hour and he said, I've I've not got anything for it. Do you want to write some sketches and fill this gap? So we did that and we put this first show on that was a sort of early league. It was called This Is It. Right. Exclamation mark. And it was just some weird sketches all just bunged together with no real But there was Pauline, a very early version of Pauline in there and some other stuff that we eventually I think kept, I think um, Benice the Agony. I did a version of when Benice became a vicar in the TV. Originally, she was an agony aunt. Mm. She was sort of like um, the agony aunt that, like Denise Robinson from This Morning, that's who she ba- was based on. Right. Because she used to say, I've always, I, <laughs> she talks about her husband. <laughs> I just remember a phrase that Mark made me laugh. He was talk- she was talking about her husband. Sad, really, because she was talking about when her husband died. It's like I've, I've known an onion. Because so many layers to that man. And it was just like, I have only loved an onion. <laughs> it just really made me laugh. Anyway, so that was the voice and that was where she came from. And then we just thought, let's make it, that her joke is that she's actually completely unsympathetic to the to the plight of the um, whatever question she gets asked. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the um, that was the gestation of the league, really. But it came out of a, out of a few years after school, after Bretton Hall. Because the, the good thing about what happened with us was we didn't try and stay, didn't immediately leave college and carry on trying to do stuff together. Because we could see that around us with other people who didn't, we called them Breton ghosts. Because they were like people that had left college but couldn't leave the area and were still clinging on to being, having the university experience. It's like, you've gone now, we don't want to see you anymore. They'd be hanging around you're like not allowed, You're ghosts. not allowed to come in the you've, parties you're done. anymore. Your time yeah. is done going to the real world, yeah. So uh, that was what we were doing with that. It was like, you shouldn't be hanging around now. We've, it's our time. Mm. But it was always acting that you wanted to pursue by going to Breton, wasn't it? Or Because it, it seemed to have fallen into writing the sketches and the performing yeah. in that way. But do you think that was because of the way that you were left to your own devices there, that you, that's what you fell into? Yeah, I suppose it was. I mean, we, I loved, I mean, the little we did of exploring various types of um, dramatic exponents like Laban and Stanislavski, and I loved all that. Mm. I I really enjoyed the idea of inhabiting a character and trying to become the person and, and be very different between each role. I sort of got into trying to be, I mean, I do have, I, I always fear that I'm the same in everything. 
I suppose every actor does. But um, it was an enjoyable experience to sort of look at different way. What is acting and what you're doing when you're doing it? Are you trying to remember a thing that made you cry and then just apply it to the thing you're doing now? Or is it a whole experience? Are you being, is it a part of, are you really sort of being yourself in a way? So, but the writing for me has always been a means to an end. I don't like it. I find it the least enjoyable part of the process, really. I only like it because I know I'll get to do these parts. So I write them thinking, because no one else will give me all the brilliant parts I write for myself. I can't get any other acting work apart from the one the stuff I do. No one ever thinks of me for anything. So I just write these things for me. But you say, I mean, you, you say that. <laughs> you say that, Reese. But, you know, you've done great dramas on ITV that you haven't written. Mark, yeah. you know, that part in, in The Hangman was such an amazing role. Yeah, brilliant. And to step into Gene Wilder's shoes and... You know, and do the producers. That's, yeah, yeah. That's you know, that's that's a big, big thing to do. It was great. So yes, yeah. and I, I am thought of for things, but a lot of the time, I think I feel like, and I know other people that do their own stuff think this as well. That you're not thought of for things because oh, they'll be doing their thing. So you, yeah. I, I feel like we're sometimes off the radar because it's like I can't consider him because he does his own own thing. And I just wish sometimes people might think of me for... Because you'd, you'd think that all the different parts that we've done is, a, is like a showreel of, oh, right, it is versatile. Yeah. But weirdly, I think we're not seen. It's like anonymous. Yeah. And also, uh, well, no, he does his thing and he creates his own work. So he, that he's, in, he's That's quite him firmly done. in that box. But yeah. the thing is, well, you had to create your own work because nobody was giving you the opportunity... And now yeah. you have created your own work and there's a level of success. You're not given the opportunity because you're thought of as that. So it, it just yeah. it goes round in a circle. I know, yeah. And it is a leaky bucket and you'll never be fulfilled. I, I think I've got no career and I've not achieved anything. And, that, and no one knows what we do and it's all very under the radar. Even mm. now, that's what I feel like. That's Being in it and living it, if you're looking at me from the outside thinking, wow, he's, got, he's done lots of varied things. I don't rate any of it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's well, very a it, positive, a refreshing way of looking at it. I think. Well, because the day so. I think, I mean, oh, I'm done, and that's it, I've done, I've achieved everything, and you fucked, aren't you? You want, you've got no well, yeah. more aspiration. And also, you might as well stop. I mean, I remember seeing a quote from oh, some knobhead actor not long ago saying that how they never get nervous about anything, when they're going on stage, they're going on stage, they never get nervous at all. It's just pure wow. adrenaline. And you just go, oh, give it over, give over. Wow. Everybody's God. nervous. Everybody thinks they're going to get found out. Everybody thinks it's the first day of school. Totally, yeah. So, so many times I've been backstage up for this, the press, the first preview, and you think, why have I done this to myself again? Yeah. <laughs> why have I put myself in this position, feeling sick? You know, it's so terrifying. But well, you I was get talking, past I was... that. I was talking to Nicole Kidman recently and she said no, a second play that she came to do over in London and she would stand in the wings just before the curtain going up and every night, and this happened without fail for the whole run, she almost couldn't walk on stage. She was physically blocked and felt oh awful. And those thoughts were running through her mind. Unbelievable. It just, ha yeah. it just happens to everybody. Yeah. And I think it gets worse as you get older. You're very... 
I feel like I'm getting less, I'm getting a bit t- more timid, mm. fearful of it. I don't, I don't know what that, if that's youth or, you know, that's that thing of like, I, I don't know if I can, have I got the fire in me to still do it? I mean, I think I have, and I, I always manage to conquer it because I, I, there's, you, want, you ultimately want to show off, don't you? The thing that always gets me through it is having rehearsed it for five weeks, whatever it is you've done, and it's the day, especially with theatre, and that you're about to go on and show the audience, or whether it's press night where it's horribly skewed in, you've got that on your mind. Mm. It's just that you've just got to, I always think, just show them what you can do. This is the point to shine, not go inward. You've got to lay it out on a plate and boldly present what you can do and you know you can do it. And it sort of always manages to push me into stepping up to the mark rather than going, I can't do it, (laughs) which is what you're feeling like every step of the way. And also you've had five or six weeks in the rehearsal room to fall flat on your face and not get it right. Yeah. Now, now's the time to always have a play about. Yes. Yeah. Enjoy it and sort of bloom rather than wither. (laughs) Breeze, when was the decision when you had to go on the dole? I'm just going back now. Is this was this after Breton? Yes, yeah, after Breton. Uh, years of um, living in London, um, in Wood Green, above Shopping City. Oh my God! You did. I used to live in Wood Green. Did you? Yes. Did you? Well, I was literally you know all those little flats above Shopping City. I well, I used to work. This is very niche for any listener. If you've been to yeah, Wood Green, you'll understand. Uh, when I was a student, I used to work in the Pizza Hut on the corner. Oh yes, Shopping City. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was oh. there from 90 onward till 96, really, mm. in and out of um, just, like, horrible uh, jobs. I mean, I, I, I was one of the first people to give the... Te- uh, we did um, in the street with a little table with lilt. Lilt was a new drink. Oh, right, OK, here we go. <laughs> so far we're going back, <laughs> and I was... Um, asking people to try it and say, is it A, B, C, O, D, which is your favourite one? And I would have to make a note. And that was going back to the manufacturers to go, right, people are liking this version of Lilt the most. So I was, I was, I did that. And uh, then I did um, online telephone surveys. Yeah. Where you're ringing up, cold calling, asking, trying to do, I mean, it wasn't even really selling. It was like stupid, just compiling Moripole opinions about like, what shoes do you wear? Or if you're going to go on holiday, where would you go? Or... What films would you rent? And people just enraged, even just the very fact you'd tried to ring them, you know. Yeah. Fuck off, you're trying to sell me something. (laughs) No, no, I'm not. And then you'd have that terrible thing of the toll of um, you have to get your target in and do so many in an hour and fill out these forms. And then I did one where I was walking around Tower Hamlets, me and a friend, trying to do a poll about holidays and just knocking on doors, Alsatians barking. Oh, God. It was really grim. And I remember literally distinctly, we had a massive pile of them. We hadn't done any. And we just, we slid, we just put them all in a bin and we just jacked it in because we couldn't do it. I thought, this is not, no human should be able to do this. It was really hard. Oh. And maybe we weren't cut out for it. Maybe there are people that would have been brilliant. I was not one of them. I don't know. I just think that's really hard. That's really, really it, hard. It was really hard. And yeah. during that yeah. time, were you? Was there any thought of you going because of the situation and how difficult and demoralising this probably was? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm just going to give up and go home. 
Yeah, because uh, that was there every every night. It was like, why am I in London? Mm. We're on the dole, the dole paying my rent because I can't get any other money. So I have no money because the dole money is my rent money to stay in a flat doing where I could be at home. I'm in a full meal with my mum and dad in Hull that I knew. Mm. And I'm in London with nothing at all and a terrible demoralising job. And it's not acting. And I would have to scrape money together to sort of try and get a CV and do... um, occasionally get remember PCR used to get that consulting absolutely thing. yeah of that, course looking at that going could I do TIE for in a, in a plane and Hamlet in a you know or, as you like it playing the you know these tidy parts where you think I'll never get it trying to mail out to get an agent it was a disaster it was so hard and nothing ever really happened I got a small part the one job I got that was before um anything to do with the league, was in um, London's Burning. Right. Had a tiny part in that. And 1992, I think it was. It was. I remember it because it was the day that the National Lottery started. Right. And everyone was like, oh, there's this thing tonight where you've, <laughs> you, you've put your numbers in and you might win it. And everyone was running back to see this moment where the balls came out. But that, that day I'd filmed doing, um, doing this tiny non-part in... Um, in London's burning and it was on a real set there was wires and cameramen and the regular actors and I was just this young couldn't believe any of it I was like I'm in a real thing with proper proper actors I didn't feel like I was at all on this in the same world really but uh, that was my first experience of like a a real an up and running tv show with the real deal and so was it was it a constant battle with you know your self-esteem because it's, it's got to take a battering at this yeah. point. And I, I always mean, I, find, because I, I remember when I lived in London and when I wasn't working and you know, quite, I mean, really unhappy, it's a, it's, it's a real battle. And I find it a very unforgiving city. Yeah. It is when you've got nothing. Exactly. It absolutely exposes that, the loneliness of that and mm. how you can't do anything. You know, this was in the days where you could have a travel card and you could sort of use it for a day and you might just about be, be able to go somewhere. But generally it's it, it's heartbreaking, yeah, to feel like you've got it. And it's self-fulfilling sort of spiral of if you're not getting anywhere, you just you just descend. I can see how you would be. There were times when I thought, yeah, I, I, this is not, I can't really do it. I don't think this is going to happen. And, and I did start looking, thinking maybe I could do, claw back something to do with my art. Right, and maybe think maybe I could do go back to art college. I didn't do anything about it, but thank God that 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 weird accident happened. That because um, it, it, what actually happened was um, Steve out the blue, having not I saw I stayed in contact with Mark a bit, and he came and used to stay with me a little bit because Mark wasn't in London. I was in London. He was in Bristol for a few years, right. and eventually he moved to London. Mm. So Mark would come and have sort of long weekends and stay over at our flat steve was doing all right he, he had a job at variety he was like um copy editor of variety so he so he felt like he was bubbling along and he'd set up his own theater company with gordon anderson yeah and was putting on plays on in the fringe and then he asked me out the blue to design the poster for a play that he and mark had written that was going on at the canal cafe where we ended up doing the league so it was out i was required back into their sort of pool via my art so I drew this poster and that was how I got back in contact with them again and then we all sort of came back together to do these sketches for this for this one night so it was a sort of happy accident that we'd 
all gone our separate ways, tried a bit. Mm. I'd probably failed more than them and then came back to do what we did. In the meantime, yeah, I did a tour in, in Germany, uh, in TIE, in a van, yeah. where I met Ollie Plimsolls and all the rest <laughs> of it. So it was all weirdly stuff that would not go unused in the end. But um, at the time, it was really hard. And uh, I just thought, I, so many people want to do this. I am just completely anonymous. I've got no leg up. I'm, I think I'm good if, if only people would dare to to take a punt. I got really close to getting into, um, do you know, Trestle Theatre Company that did the masks? Yeah. And they were quite big and they had, it was a really good tour and I didn't get it and I was gutted because I, I thought, oh, this is it, this is the turning point, I'm going to get this. So I went for the audition, it was a really good audition. And then I didn't get it and it was like, I was gutted. I was like, I think that was it, that, I, that I've missed the boat. And it's that moment, like that. that that last chance saloon. This is I'm going to put all of it into this, and if nothing else happens, that's it. I'm packing, packing my yeah. bags, and I'm and I'm done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember Mark saying to me a couple of times, "I think we've missed the boat. We were we we were good, and we we could have got through the door. I feel that sometimes like there's a door, doesn't it? And you just got to yeah. get through it, oh, and it slams in your face, and then it's it's locked for however many years. You're yeah. going to get. You know, it's really hard. But, uh, yeah, it's... And But I remember once, it was in 90... We were in Edinburgh... No, we were in Brighton. We'd done some t- shows in Brighton. And right. we were on the beach in Brighton. And Jeremy said we just... I think we were quite despondent. Because it was fine. It had gone fine. It was sort of this league sketches. But it was just a bit of treadmill time of doing it, but to no avail, really. And, he, and Jeremy just said, I just remember Jarvis Cocker. You've just got to keep going. He he did it for years, and he was he sort of doubled down on we can't stop, we mustn't give up. Mm. So we didn't, and eventually people's heads turn, and you've it doesn't always happen. Of course, there are fucking millions of people that are brilliant, and it doesn't happen. So, no, but also, but also, it I think it takes time. I mean, you look, you know, looking back at. Starting the league at the Canal Cafe and then the progression into radio. Slow. Yes. That's what, actually, so when you went to radio, from from the sketches, say, from Edinburgh, not a lot would have changed from, go, from going moving into radio? Yeah, no, not really. Although we really embraced, because suddenly we were at the BBC Radio studio and it was like, wow, this is where they did the goons. And so we yeah. really wanted to make... A radio version of our of our show, and so we embraced using sound effects in the way that they did. And we thought, if it's an aural landscape, let's really really try and use that, and, and not try and do a TV series on radio. So some of the sketches work perfectly, and other things were created purely as as audio gags. Like Mister Chinnery, the vet that kills animals, he was a radio gag because it was just like we could do, we could have him cut. Hello, what seems to be the problem with this? And then you could do some squawking and some horrendous yeah. thing that's happening. And the sound is the funny thing. So some things were born out of the fact that it was radio. But, yeah, we didn't um, we didn't skip over the radio thinking this is just the stepping stone to telly. We really enjoyed doing it. And um, we learnt a lot from it, I think. And it, it really whittled down what... It, we learnt an important thing about what is in what could be in the world of Royston Vasey and that town and what couldn't. Because some things we'd had some great sketches that were historical sketches and or like parodies of uh, murder mysteries and things, and they just didn't fit with the world. Yeah. So you had to know that 
you might have great stuff, but it doesn't can't, doesn't necessarily mean it's allowed all to go in. You know, we have to. And you don't. You need to, I'm sure, surely you don't want to just crowbar it in. For yeah, the sake yeah, of exactly, it either. Exactly. Yeah, and you've just got to think. Well, it's, it just doesn't fit. You can't have it. Mm. So uh, on the radio, we already had, I think, the characters of the uh, of Tubbs and Edward in the local shop, but we knew it didn't really fit, so we didn't put them in until we had the TV, and then it was like we can have them now because they can be geographically outside of the town and we can go to them and so uh, yeah it was a, a good lesson in um, self-editing whose idea was it uh, to, to move to television or was this something that was pitched to you it was all part of I mean you can't believe it to say it out loud now but it was at, in those days 1998 mm. We got our, well, no, 97, we got the radio series and it was a bi-media thing where you would get a TV series on the back of your radio series. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was, we knew we had it and it was like, you'll do this and then you'll, then the next step is the TV version of it. So we knew that was the next step. And I remember being very excited I and mean, it was sort of like, I couldn't quite take it in, but I remember the day that we got that, the radio series and the, the TV, the leap to telly after, being excited by the TV, by the radio, but not really thinking ahead to, oh, my God, that's the thing, that's the goal. Yeah. I just remember being, that was an amazing thing to get the radio series. So that was the next thing we were doing, and that was what was at the forefront of my sort of excitement at the time. But but it's like you said ages ago at the beginning of the conversation, you know, getting up and doing these sketches, there was never a, a, a forward plan to go, this is the next step, this is the progression to Edinburgh, yeah. we win that, we go to the... It was never there. It was never there. And I, I, it's funny because I see, and I've heard that people use it as a blueprint now to go, what you do is you get you do, you do form a team, like a, a funny sketch troupe that do, you're all individual characters, and then that becomes successful. And then you get hand-picked out of that group as individual comedy actors. And it's like completely going about it the wrong way around because you don't just assume that that, that's the thing in itself, getting that successful. Mm. You know, you can't just put together a, a team that you assume then will all bloom in their own rights. Like no, exactly. Like Python or, or the Horrible Histories team where they're all individually brilliant. But that in itself has to be a genuine thing, I think, to start with. And it was for us, and I, I, I do know that we didn't have it as a master plan, but I also know that we really raised each other's game. Mark and Steve are brilliant, and, I, you know, I couldn't... It was like a dog paddling. You had to just really keep up with how good you had to be in the group, you know, to own, earn your place. So that we're rubbing off each other in it and making each other better, I think, by yeah. the fact that we're all, we're all good. But that's it, because you, you want to work with brilliant people so you can, like, learn off them and raise your game and, yeah. try, and try and get there. Exactly, exactly. Was it, was it always a conscious thing between the four of you that Jeremy would have his silent place, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, well, to begin with, Jeremy did act in it. When we first did that gap, that, that show for, for Gordon, mm. he was in it. And I think he just, he, he, he looked across at me and Mark and Steve and he, he said, I, I just knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do and I was nowhere near, I couldn't do it. You know, it's yeah. not the, the assumption is, you know, you, not everyone can do it. And, and I think he was the first one to say it. he didn't, we didn't have to sort of gently say, oh, God, well, someone's going to have to tell him. It was like he said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it and I'm going to write yeah. alongside you. And we've, you know, we've, we've respected that and he's been absolute. He is the fourth member of the league mm. and we, he always will be. And, um, yeah, there was never any awkwardness about it in the end because he was like, yeah, that's my 
strength is in the writing. And it's a funny mix, that, because it left, interestingly, the um, dynamic of the characters and the scenes that we would write have slightly been coloured by the teams because me and Steve used to write together and now we obviously continue to do so and Mark and Jeremy would. So that, I think that is why Mark would often get a lot of characters that would do like monologues because he'd be writing with Jeremy who wouldn't be doing a double act with him yes. ultimately. So that is often the way it would work out. And was that just um, naturally that you you and Steve gravitate towards each other with your writing and Mark and Jeremy? Yeah, and geographically I think because me and Steve were sharing a flat and we were like literally just getting up again on the dole and just writing all day long these churning out weird ideas and 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 stuff that would hit or not and it was just a really great learning curve of of what what is to write a a funny sketch you know and our writing has developed in that sense i think i think we're better now than we were when we did the league i think we've got more we've got better at structure and and character and plot. You know, we've got more and more interested in longer storytelling. And then number nine becomes along and we did Psychoville that was a big, long uh, series. And then we did, now we do our little episodic stories. But it's very different. If you, you know, if you look back to, I mean, if you listen back to the radio and then look at the the, the first series to now, to, to what you're doing with number nine, it's like what we spoke about, you know, I'm going to terrify you, then I'm going to break your heart. And it's less sketchy, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there's more yeah. of an arc there. Absolutely, yeah. And we, we've got the luxury of spending, a, it's only 28 minutes, but it's a bit longer with the characters to sort of hit the ground and tell a good story with them and stay with them as characters. One of the mad things about League and Psychoville was playing all these different characters and never having any time with any of them. But it's nice to do one to film a week where you're the same person all the way through that week, yeah. especially for us who came through sketch comedy. Of course. It's really rare now. You don't do sketch comedy anymore. It's too expensive. It's you too don't expensive. Get it. Yeah. Because there's so many, because if you think about it, it's, it's so many different locations to do, vi- you know, we're going to go to a church, we're going to go to a campsite, we're going to go to a gym. It's just too expensive to do all the travelling to all the different places and much better to have it set in a school and that's it for the, for the six half hours, yeah, then go flitting around all these different places. You, you, you don't get them; they're really out of favour. It's a shame because you get great people come out of it. I think you get you know, it's a great ground for um, character com- character comedians. You know, well, to absolutely. Try I mean, you know, I remember talking to John Thompson a while back when they were doing an anniversary of the Fast Show, and. It- Every, all the hits that came out of there yeah, and yeah, all those yeah. brilliant, oh God, know, brilliant yeah. actors. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, we are actors, actually. It's not, I know we've, I've got my sort of leaning toward comedy, but we, we are all, I think, um, people that could very happily do and have done and have done dramas. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And have enjoyed it. When I did that play at the Old Vic last, uh, two years ago now, the, Playing Putin, that was terrifying. Doing that, a very expensive poison that new mm. Lucy Preble play, and I loved it. It was fantastic because that had a dark quality to it. It was comedic, but it was very black as well and very bleak and uh, a serious, horrendous subject about the poisoning of Litvinenko. But it was great that they thought of me for that because I thought, wow, this is. They, I'm sure anybody would want to do this. Why have mm. you thought of me? So it was lovely to think that they thought I had the acting chops to do it, but. You're the one that kills me because you were the caddy. 
this podcast, what, isn't, this podcast all, isn't about me, Reese. We'll cut yeah, this but all out. I must think of is what must it have been like to have been getting those scripts and being and being able to act that journey. But it must but, have been. Well, I didn't so brilliant. know. I didn't know until <laughs> I, I didn't know anything because you're drip fed scripts. Oh my so god! Yeah, you but you knew know. you had to play various things. I knew I had to play various things, but I didn't know until halfway through series one. Right. About oh, what was right. going oh, okay. on. So right. had right. I have right. known, right. you know, I, I think I would have played it differently. And I think it would, yeah, it would have yeah. been wrong to have played it like that. Yes. Well, it would have, you'd have been tipping the wink, possibly, yeah. Possibly. Or you'd temp- temptation to have or been, yeah. the th- fact that I would have been suppressing something, yeah, I'm yes, sure. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Under um, there, yeah. Just going back, and I don't know, because I, I, this is all stuff that I was reading in the paper. Um, were you contacted when they decided to edit certain bits of the league when they were put it back on iPlayer. So obviously I'm talking about Papa Lazaro. Yeah, yeah. No, they did... um, Well, what happened with that was we got told, oh, it's coming off iPlayer. Oh, no, it wasn't ever coming off iPlayer. iPlayer, They they stuck by it and said, we're going to put up... um, This is, like, historical content and... Ah, you may not okay. want to see it, so it was a sort of warning. That was what I played in, and BBC were very. I think they carefully thought about it and and, and didn't just pull it, so it didn't get taken off iPlayer. Netflix right. got rid of it, there but we it go. was a, it was actually coming off Netflix in a week anyway. Its anyway. license had run, run, run out, right? So we were like, oh right, is that because of is is there a reason behind that? And they never actually ever commented as to what if it was that or whether it was it's. It was licenses was going to be renewed anyway. Mm. We knew it was coming off anyway. Right. But yeah, that was because because there is certain obviously there is certain things historically when we look back at comedy and you go no 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 yes of course one you look back at it now and you think Jesus that shouldn't have been allowed at the at the time let alone now yeah I genuinely I never ever thought and I'm, I'm pretty sure you you would never have wanted that to play it was never racist to me I never th- got a hint of it being no racist. no I mean you can't really it's hard isn't it because you do try to um explain it away by saying you've got to look at it in context and of course you do but I think you've got to uh, just concede that you've got to look back and think you couldn't do it now and there's a different mindset and it is it's wrong now but uh, at the time no it, Papa Lazarus was not even human. No. I mean, it, it was like a demon. It was like meant to be this most, something from your nightmare. It was never, that wasn't ever the connotation. And we've never had any complaints about it ever. In It was on in three episodes of League of Gentlemen over 20 years. Mm. Never anything. So it was, it's mortifying to think anyone would ever have construed it in that way. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, and we are the ones that are skirting dark and edgy comedy, but never with that in mind, you know. Do you, yeah. do you feel, with regards to comedy, there are certain limitations or there are certain things that we can't laugh about? Well, that's really interesting because I think I could do a joke about killing a... Um, running over a hedgehog and someone has all their life had great solace with this pet hedgehog that they've had and it would be crippling to them to see that as a gag so you can't legislate for how somebody's going to land and the personal experiences of anybody about any gag the mildest silliest gag Mm. and the most innocuous thing could really wound someone if 
weird circumstances have got something that really triggers them as far as it being offensive. So I think it's hard because I don't know where you would end up if you thought every step of the way, got to be careful here because there might be somebody somewhere Who's going to get offended? Who's going to get offended? And yeah. that is really a difficult. I don't know where it leaves you being with with the freedom of being able to skirt the lines of dark and light that we do. That's it's it's our particular thing. I think we're, we're really careful with not ever doing it willy nilly and never trying to just boldly reach out for the lowest common denominator shock value. I think our things work because we're quite careful in how we use it. Yeah, and, and um, temper it. And I think we've always done that. And I, I always, I'm always, I always think people have done us a, a disservice if they've thought, if they think, oh, it's just sick. Because I think, oh, no, it's more than that. It's a bit more thought out than that. It's not just sort of gross out. No, it's, I've, 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 I've never thought of your, yeah. your um, work as being that gross out, lowest common denominator humour ever. I've always, yeah. I think it's always been thought out. And that's why it's th- thought of and held in high regard. And people do yeah. hold it close to their heart, you know. They have very good memories of that. Yes, and I think it's like what you said earlier about the characters. They are monsters and very big. I mean, they look like, you know, almost like Mr and Mrs Tiggywinkle, some of them. So huge are the performances. And yet, at the kernel of them all are three actors trying to give you a truth to the character, mm. however monstrous, with a got a beating heart behind it. So Steve can play Pauline, this horrible restart woman. And you you feel sorry for him by the end. And same with her lip. And he's like a horrible, lechy old paedophile. <laughs> and, um, or potential. And it's just like, you know, th- this is, that's where it elevates that, I think, to not just 2D characters. I think we've always tried to make them more than just sketches. You know, the, the characters were born out of probably a one-note idea, mm. oh, at least that woman that doesn't care about the unemployed. But then we took them out of that and began to give them real lives in other situations, and you, you stayed with it, and that was what made it a bit different and not just like a sketch show as well, I think. Well, I think that's why, and I've always said this, and I do stand by it, I think if, you know, you're constantly honing your craft with comedy you can kind of, you can step into the drama shoes pretty easily because I think there's a very thin line between the two. Yeah, oh, I agree. And you get some great comic actors that you suddenly, you know, bowled over by their, suddenly it will do a straight performance because you've yeah. never seen them do it. And you go, wow, that's, that's so brilliant. But it's harder to see it the other way around, I think. You get a lot of good actors that suddenly put in a comedy and you think, they can't do it. no. And it's and clear as day. Expo- yeah, and it's oh, clear it's, as day, yeah. It's super exposing, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and that's interesting, isn't it? Because you think, I mean, doing a comedy play, you know, you hear when you're failing, you're waiting on the laughs. It's easy to do a drama where, give me all my sons, wait, silence all the way through and a clap at the end, please. <laughs> Not a comedy where you, you can't hear the laughs coming. <laughs> Oh, Reese, I'm so pleased that we managed to finally do this. I know, we've been talking great. for ages. It's been brilliant. Yeah, thank um, you. Thanks so much for coming on. We did a lot of talk about acting things, but that's all right, isn't it? And me as a person, which is good. But I, I don't think anyone's ever heard about my time at above Woodgreen Shopping City before. Well, exactly. It's it's pearls of gold like that. Pearls of gold, <laughs> nuggets of gold like that while yeah. people listen to this podcast. Reese yeah, Smith, thank you so much thank for your you, time. Ray. That's all, thank you. 
another episode is done. Um, I can't thank Reese enough for giving up his time and coming on. And it, it really explained a lot to me why he doesn't do a lot of podcasts and he doesn't do the the panel show rounds. It's because of that shyness and it can be really exposing. So, yeah, absolutely thrilled that he chose us to come on and have a talk to. And I really, really hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. Um, And look, I'm not going to say I'll see you next week because it's uncertain. I don't know. So I don't want to give anybody false hope. But if we do, we do. If we don't, it'll be soon. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We just want to get everything back up and running to a regular pattern. So until we do meet again, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take care of yourself, all right? The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. Hey, I'm Bert from The Burt Show. You have people on a show that really don't like morning shows. Stealing an entire school bus, I gotta be honest, that is my dream still. Why take initiative when you can take a nap? I like keeping it real and I like keeping it gross. <laughs> so we created a show that we really wanted to hear. It's real and it's funny and we will talk about our personal lives. We're not scared of anything. Okay, if you want this prize right here, you're gonna have to work for it. What I love most about this show is everybody's vulnerability. And though our perspectives may be different, we're Working together is actually fun. We put the fun and dysfunction. I think it's unlike anything that you've heard before. The Bird Show. New episodes every weekday and the weekly top 10 on Saturdays. Listen to this show on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, ACAST, ACAST recommends. recommends.